Good morning. So for those of you I don't know, I'm the pastor of Women's Ministries here. My name is Jennifer Roth. And since this is the second time I was invited to preach, I thought it was time to introduce my family to you. So on the screen behind, you'll see a picture of my husband and I celebrating our 15th anniversary this last August. And our children, Josiah is 12, Titus is 10, and Abby is 7. We live out in the Silverton area where my husband and his family are farmers, have been farming there for about three generations. It's an honor to do life with these people. And as with any family, there's something that's more than meets the eye with our family. And I want to tell you a story about my daughter, Abby. Abby was born, and several of you walked this journey with us, and this is not new news to you, but Abby was born with several birth defects. Um, It was due to, the way it was explained to us was that in the earliest stages of cell development, there were some things that happened out of sequence, and that created these birth defects. And so when Abby was born, she um, had a hole in her heart, she had spinal problems, and she had an extra toe um, on her foot, she had a... um, a kidney in the wrong place. Her toe, by the way, was actually a thumb on her right foot in the arch, and it was jointed. It was fascinating. Um, we called it her monkey toe. <laughs> I think if she'd been able to keep it, uh, she might have been able to pick things up with it, but it had to come off so she could fit in shoes. So within the first two and a half years of her life, Abby had several surgeries. At seven months, we had her open heart surgery, which completely repaired, and she's great with her heart. Her surgeon calls her better than normal. Uh, We did have a spinal surgery. Her uh, spinal cord was tethered too tightly to her tailbone, so that was corrected, and we did have the orthopedic surgery to remove that toe. And what was left was one issue that was not resolved, and it's here in the picture, but you might not have noticed it when you just see one picture. Her, Her head is tilted to the left, but what you might not know is that as an infant, her head was tilted to the left, and even as she grew and into a toddler and began to run and walk, Um, her head was tilted to the left. And we were told after some x-rays and an MRI that kind of caught a view of her neck um, by some high specialists up in the Portland area that this was a bone problem. It was her permanent resting place and to never expect her to hold her head up straight. And so we began the journey of doing life with a child who was not ever going to be able to hold her head up straight and to fix the things that were related to this bone problem. So the first thing that we did was when she was about one year old, we got her this really cute pink helmet. This helmet was not because she was prone to seizures. This helmet was purely cosmetic. See, as she did life at this angle, her head was always leaning on things here and she got this flat spot. And the helmet was so that her head could be a rounded shape. And that was really just something I decided as a mother that when she was 15, she would rather have a round head than a football-shaped head, and she would thank me. So for a year, she wore this cute pink helmet everywhere. And we also started doing physical therapy and occupational therapy. We went up to an orthotics place in Portland that made us a brace so that once a day, we could force her head into the upright position and get some brain input in the upright position. And we, she and I would play games and do work together with this brace on. You'll notice she also has some really cute little pink glasses on. Those glasses had prisms in them because when we put her head up straight, her eyes would go out of line. And the way it was described to us was she did life seeing horizontal here, and so when she straightened up, she was seeing double. That's how it was explained. So the glasses were so that her eyes would work while we forced her head up straight while we did physical therapy. This is what we were doing to try to fix the bone problem. Until the day that I walked into an office with Abby of a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who said, I don't think this is a bone problem. 
and he sent us to KCI Institute. And in a story that's much too long to tell you here, KCI Institute confirmed that this was an eye problem, not a bone problem. That Abby had a muscle in her eye, that, her right eye, that was supposed to control her leftward gaze, and the muscle wasn't working. And so when she tried to look left, she'd lose control of her eye, and she couldn't see. And so she controlled her world by tilting her head to the side and always looking up and to the right at everything. And never once did I see her eyes out of alignment unless we forced her head up straight. And so in the surgery that he did, he actually discovered that the muscle wasn't just weak, it wasn't attached to her eyeball. And in a surgery that had God's hands all over it, the surgeon was able to stitch that muscle to the right spot on her eyeball so that my daughter, who I had been told would never hold her head up straight, within four days was straight up. She's a healthy, rambunctious seven-year-old with plenty of energy and no health issues that we know of, and we're so grateful. I call her my little miracle because it took the whole arsenal of God's healing to bring that little girl into the world and to where she is today. You see, Abby had some developmental problems that created a visual distortion that created a place in her life where she was stuck. And I think that it's possible that you and I have had some issues in our development that may have led to some visual distortions, that has led to some places in our life where we're stuck. And as we get into the scripture today, I think what we're going to find is that Jesus sees beyond the places where you and I are stuck. Jesus sees deeper. He sees more than the people around him see, and we need his kind of vision. I'm preaching today from Mark chapter 4. We've been in a series on the book of Mark, and um, I'm not going to be reading word for word these stories. If this sermon is to get finished in a half an hour, I can't read you all the stories. So I'm going to tell you stories from Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, and I encourage you to look at them for yourself over the next day or two. As I dug into these and prepared to be here today, I found that there were so many rich applications when we watch how Jesus interacts with the world around him about how you and I interact about in the, with the world around us. So I invite you to spend some time in that scripture, even though we're not going to read it verbatim today. We start in Mark chapter 4 with the storm Um, at the Sea of Galilee. You might remember from last week that Steve was telling us that Jesus was teaching parables along the Sea of Galilee. And when he finished that day of teaching, he said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So his disciples got him in the boat. Some other boats went with them and they started across the lake. Presumably tired from his long day of teaching, Jesus went to the back of the boat, laid his head on a cushion, and he fell asleep. And a huge storm rose up. Now I need to tell you right now, I'm just going to interrupt for a second. I really, really wanted to have flannel graph for you today. These are just such classic Sunday school stories. I even got so far as to going to the drawers where the pictures were. But I'm very, very sorry to say that somewhere along the line, our children's department lost Jesus. So I don't have flannel graph for you, but I can tell you that a sudden storm came up on the Sea of Galilee. And it's not unusual, I've learned, for sudden storms to come up on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Because of its topography, it's a known fact about that place. So it's not like these experienced fishermen ignored signs of an impending storm and took off across the lake. This was a sudden storm, came upon them unexpected, and these seasoned veterans of the lake were afraid for their lives. The water was coming in over the bow of the boat, and they honestly believed they were going to die. And they went to Jesus, who was sleeping, remember, in the back of the boat, and they said, Jesus, don't you care? 
Don't you care that we are going to die? And I wonder if sometimes you and I ask the same question of Jesus. When the circumstances of our life reach that peak, that it's beyond what it's ever been before, whether it's a relationship failing or a job failing or a financial crisis, when those circumstances, this storm reaches a point and we look around and we don't see Jesus, he's either quiet or absent or quite frankly, it appears as if he's asleep. And aren't we tempted to ask, Jesus, don't you care that I am dying here? And the truth is, he does care. And he cared that day. And he woke up, and he spoke to the wind, and he spoke to the waves, and he said, be still. And they did. And the disciples were terrified. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Like my family and my family story, there's a more than meets the eye moment. And as we go through these stories today, I want to pull out a more than meets the eye moment when Jesus saw something beyond what you and I see. And this is the more than meets the eye moment in this story. Because Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What was it that Jesus was asking of them in that moment? What was it that he saw that they didn't see? You see, I have to confess that I have wrestled with this passage for a large majority of my life because it bumps into one of my visual distortions. You know, those things that in our development, in my development, I establish a belief that the voice of authority is harsh. See, I'm a pretty, no, very sensitive person and I hate being corrected by my parents, by my teachers, by a boss, by God himself. I hate being corrected. And so I have taken this harsh voice and I felt often that correction was for things I didn't know before. You know, somebody's telling me something that I've never been taught and I'm being corrected. And it didn't matter if the voice was actually harsh. I received it as a harsh voice. So when I read this, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith through my visually, visually distorted picture of who God is? I've got him with a harsh voice there. And I think, Jesus, is that fair? Is that fair? They've never seen the storm stilled by a human voice before. They'd have no way of knowing that you could do that. This is completely outside of their experience. Is it fair to demand faith at a place when they can't know how the story was going to end? Is that fair? I was talking with the preaching team getting ready to preach here. It's kind of funny how the things God teaches us come up as you're teaching. <laughs> and somebody in the preaching team office said to me, Jennifer, we don't know the tone of voice that Jesus used when he said that. And all of a sudden it hit me. What if that wasn't a harsh voice at all? What if that was a loving, endearing, oh, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Imagine with me that I go into my daughter's room in the middle of the night because she's had a nightmare and she's crying. And I go in and I say, why are you so afraid? Don't you know this is a safe house and dreams are imaginary? No, no loving parent does that. I go into my daughter's room and I wrap her in my arms and I hold her close and I say, it's okay. Mama's here. It's okay. And I stay with her until her heart rate slows down, and she's at peace enough to go back to sleep. What if that's what Jesus was doing? Because Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us this about faith. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. 
Faith gives us assurance about things we cannot see. The disciples could not know that Jesus could and would still that storm. You and I cannot know what the outcome of our present storm will be. Faith is not a demand that we believe that the outcome will be good. Faith is a gift. It's an invitation to enter into the fact that we know the God who holds our situation. And the invitation is to entrust our lives to him. What if in that boat, rather than looking at the waves and assuming that Jesus didn't care, the disciples had looked at the waves, looked at Jesus, and asked this question. How can he be at peace in this storm? What does he know that I don't know? And that's where faith comes in. The faith to believe that when we look to Jesus and we take his actions as our example and we believe that he is worthy to be trusted no matter what the outcome of this storm, that is the faith that he invites us to and that is the peace that enabled him to sleep in a storm. You see, our fears can distort our vision and God invites us to faith. A faith that is a gift, not a harsh demand. When they got across to the other side of the lake, because the storm stilled and they got there, they found themselves in a, a place that was removed from town. There were some tombs. There was a herd of pigs on the hills. And there was a man who was possessed by evil spirits. As a matter of fact, it tells us he was possessed by many evil spirits who identified themselves by the name Legion because they were so many. We don't know how long he'd been in that condition, but we know that the people around had tried to control him, to chain him, to keep him bound, and, and he would break the chains. He was uncontrollable. He was out wandering in the wilderness by himself in the tombs. It says that he was scratching himself with shards. He was violent. And this was the condition when Jesus landed on his side of the lake. It says that he ran to Jesus and bowed before him. Jesus told the demonic spirits to come out of him. And what ensued was a conversation between Jesus and these evil spirits. And I just have to confess that I don't understand why Jesus bargained with those spirits that day. But I can tell you that the conversation, they said, don't send us out of the area. Please give us permission to go into the pigs. And Jesus said, yes. And so in mass, this legion of demons left the man and went into the pigs and rushed down the hill into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. It was the massive crash of the pig market in BC01. <laughs> the folks who were watching the pigs ran into town. The townspeople came out when they, count, they found this man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and sane. And they were terrified. Who is this man who can give freedom to this one who we could not control? And I wonder, are there people in our life who are difficult? Are there people in our life with whom our relationships are strained? Is there conflict at work? Are there kids at your child's school? Are there places where people's behavior are distorting your vision of what God sees in them? Because, see, this is our more than meets the eye moment. Because what happened was the people begged Jesus to leave, and the man who'd been set free begged Jesus to go with him. And here's Jesus' answer He says, No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. The reason this jumped out at me is because up to this point, when Jesus has done a miracle, he's told them what? Don't tell. 
Don't tell, don't tell. And then he tells this guy, go tell. Why? Jesus isn't random. He's not just willy-nilly about how, what he's telling people. There's a reason. And, and the question is, why? What did he see that was beyond what you and I see that would make him say, go tell to this man? I don't know all the reasons, but here are two. One is that we know this was a Gentile region. There's no market for pigs in Jewish regions. They didn't eat pigs. So we know it was a Gentile region. So perhaps that had some difference in why over here don't tell and over here go tell. But I think the heart of the matter is that where others saw a crazy man, Jesus saw a missionary. This man was the first missionary to the Gentile world. It says that he went to the 10 towns, which are otherwise known as the Decapolis, and he told his story, and he told about what God had done for him, and everyone who heard gave glory to God. He was the precursor to the ability of the gospel to be heard and received in the Gentile world. Because where other people saw the behaviors of this man, Jesus saw his destiny and his potential and his purpose, and he set him free. And you and I must get past the behaviors, the addictions, the troubles that we see in other people's lives, and we can't write them off and leave them to their loneliness and their self-violence. But we must recognize that there is a spiritual reality beyond our physical reality, and there are people in our world who are in bondage, and we are busy being offended at them. Offense is not the response that God calls from us. It's love. I want to make a really quick caveat here. There are some people whose addictions and behaviors are abusive to us, and I am not saying to stay in an abusive place. But I am saying that we need to ask God to give us eyes to see the heart and the potential of people who are currently stuck. Because if we have not submitted and surrendered our life to the power of Jesus Christ, then we are in the bondage to the enemy of our souls, and we need to be set free. And the only person who can set us free is Jesus Christ, and we need a spiritual intervention, just like the man on the other side of the lake needed a spiritual intervention. And if we don't have eyes to see that we can be God's vehicles of that spiritual intervention through prayer and the power of Jesus Christ, then we are not able to fully enter into being the peace that he longs for us to be able to be to the world around us. Jesus got back in his boat and he headed back across the lake with his disciples. And when they got there, the crowd was still there. Jesus did a lot of his ministry in a crowd. And in this crowd, there was a religious leader named Jairus who was coming towards him. Now, Jairus was not coming to argue with his theology, and he was not coming to oppose him, which is really something, because you might remember that the religious leaders in general did not like Jesus. Matter of fact, some of them were so offended by his actions in theology that they wanted to kill him. But this religious leader humbled himself and came to Jesus, setting down all of his religious baggage because his little girl was sick. She was sick to the point of death. And he had seen and knew that Jesus healed. And he came and he asked, Teacher, will you come to my house where my little girl is dying? Would you lay a hand on her and heal her? And Jesus said, yes, he would come. And so the whole crowd followed as they went to go to the house of Jairus. And what happened next was an interruption. There was a woman. There was a woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years And in her culture, that meant that for 12 years, she had been unclean. Now, in that culture, when you're unclean, if you touch anyone else, they also become unclean, and they have to go through this ritual of cleansing. And so for 12 years, she had been untouchable. People in her neighborhood went around their way to get around her, so they were careful not to bump her because they didn't want to have the the time setback of having to go through this ritual of being clean, let alone the weakness and the pain of the chronic physical condition. 
And this woman thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I can be healed. That's faith. The assurance of what she could not see. But she didn't want the other, she didn't really want to be seen. She didn't really want her, peop, the, the, her community and her friends and her family that were all crowding around Jesus to know that she was there and touching them and they were becoming unclean. And so she just tried to sneak in and touch his robe and sneak out. And the moment that she touched his robe, she was healed. She could tell that the bleeding had stopped. And she went to sneak away, her healing complete. And Jesus said, who touched me? Who touched me? His disciples were kind of like, uh, Jesus, you're in a crowd. Like 10 people touched you in the last 10 seconds. No, I know that power went out from me. Who touched me? The woman realized that she couldn't get away without being known. And she came and she stood before Jesus and all those people who knew her and her condition. How embarrassing. And she told him what was going on. And Jesus looked at her. And he said this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. She had lost everything financially pursuing doctor's um, solutions for this. She had lost her relationships. Your suffering is over. Go in peace. Here's our more than meets the eye moment. It's the moment for me when Jesus said, who touched me? Because you see, our shame can distort our vision. She didn't want to be seen. She had spent 12 years being rejected and untouchable. She just wanted to sneak out and sneak back and not have people look at her or jump away from her. She just wanted to be healed. But Jesus knew that physical healing was not enough for her. Jesus knew that this woman had suffered beyond physical healing and that she needed to be made whole. And if you, if you look at the Greek, which I'm not smart enough to know Greek, but it's really easy on the internet now to find out about Greek... You find that the word healed when she touched his robe is about physical healing. And the word healed when he looked her in the eye is about being made whole. And Jesus knows that you and I need to be made whole. That our needs run deeper than what others can see on the surface. And there are things in our lives she needed to be reestablished in her community. She needed everybody in that crowd to hear that she was healed, the bleeding was stopped, and she was clean. She was reestablished in her community by the words and the loving touch of Jesus, who was not willing to let her sneak away in her shame, but wanted to see her live without shame. At the moment that she left, there came messages from the house of Jairus. They said, you don't need to bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. I don't know where you've been or when you've heard the words that someone that you loved was was gone. But until that moment, there's hope. And in our experience, beyond that moment, it's all over. Throughout history, for the most part, dead is dead. And this father, standing in this crowd, in this moment of grief, that he wasn't fast enough with the teacher, what, what, is, he, what is he feeling? And Jesus turns to him and he says, don't be afraid, only believe that invitation to the gift of faith to believe something that you cannot see, not because you know what the outcome will be, but because you know who holds the outcome. And they continue on to the man's house. And at the house, they find that outside there's the weepers and the wailers and the people who are grieving. And it's in this moment that I found my more than meets the eye moment. 
Because Jesus looks at all this and he says, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Now, if you've ever witnessed death, you know when they're dead. And these people knew that she was gone. And they didn't laugh at Jesus because they were bad people. They laughed at Jesus because it was ridiculous. They laughed at Jesus because it was reality. They laughed at Jesus because they didn't know what he knew. And are there times in our lives where the things that Jesus is asking us to believe or the things that he's asking us to do are laughable? Because in our experience, they make no sense. But see, what Jesus knew is that our God is the God of life and death has no hold over him. He knew that he was going to walk into that room and he was going to tell that little girl to wake up, which is exactly what he did. He said, little girl, get up. And she did. Raised from the dead, he restored her to her parents and he said, give her something to eat. And you and I need to know that our experience can distort our vision and God is calling us to know that he is the God who can bring life to the impossible. There are other things that distort our vision. In this, these stories, we've seen fear, the behavior of others, or even, quite frankly, our own behaviors, places where we don't like the way we act, our shame, our experience of reality. There are more. What about pride, jealousy, pain and loss, perfectionism? Our development creates visual distortions that creates places where we're stuck. For some of you, it may be that in your development, there was a distortion created about who God is and who Jesus is, and you've never made the choice to follow him with your life because he just doesn't seem good or worth following. What do we do when we recognize those places where we're stuck? The crazy thing about visual distortions is you can't see them. (laughs) If I'm blind to something, I can't see it. So how do we move forward in this. I've got a couple thoughts for you. One is awareness. I've heard that awareness is 80% of the battle. This place of just paying attention, gentle noticing. If you're anything like me, you know some of the places in your life where your response to a given situation is stronger than what the situation merits. And you recognize that there's something at play in here. There's something triggering a response in me that isn't really about what I'm in the middle of. That's a stuck spot. That's a place where our vision is distorted. And so in this place, we're aware and we bring our awareness to Jesus, like the child with the loaves and fishes. And we say, this is what I have. I'm aware that I don't see things the way you see them in this given situation. And can I encourage you that when you have that awareness to not rush into the place of fixing it? Because I think that when we self-diagnose and try to fix, we can find ourselves barking up the wrong tree. Kind of like trying to fix a bone problem when the real issue is an eye problem. Let me give you an example from my life. I told you in the story of the storm that one of my visual distortions is that I tend to hear the voice of authority as a harsh voice. And so my self-diagnosis and my fix for that is to try to be good enough Every day, in every situation, every moment of the day, to never have to be corrected. I don't know if you've ever lived like that, but it's a lot of pressure. 
It's called perfectionism. I'm a recovering perfectionist. If you relate to that description, I'd love to recommend our Life Path community here at church. It's where I began to start to have my visual distortion corrected and my perception come a little bit more clear. I'm still on the journey, but that's where it began to come loose for me. And in my awareness, my fix was to try to be good enough. But what I needed was to recognize that I don't have to be good enough for Jesus Christ. That's why he came, because he knew I would never be good enough. And that I need to recognize myself as his beloved daughter, who is cherished by him, who is held in his arms, as he says, it's okay, I'm here, I'm not leaving, until my heart rate settles, and I'm able to be at peace. This is the knowledge I need. This is my self-fix. So as you enter awareness about the places where you have distorted vision, don't rush into fixing but bring it into the presence of Jesus and see what he says. Another way to kind of look at our visual distortions is to ask. I believe that there are people in your life who, if you were honest, could tell you some of the distortions that you live with. Others often see us more clearly in some areas than we see ourselves. And this is a hard question to ask. It's a question that demands boldness. But you might want to ask some of the people who are closest to you, do you see ways that my pride keeps me from interacting with people in a healthy way? Do you see ways that my fear gets in the way of the calling that God has on my life? Do you see ways that my developmental distortions are getting in the way of the destiny that God has for me? And I believe people could speak into your life and give you a next step on this journey of seeing those visual distortions changed. We also want to ask Jesus. He wants us to see. He, wants, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can have our vision adjusted. When we're in these situations where we've bumped into, I recognize I'm not seeing this situation as Jesus sees it, throw up a breath prayer. Jesus, I want to see. Give me eyes to see. There's a man in the Bible who did this. His name is Bartimaeus. We find him in Mark chapter 10. He was blind, and he was by the side of the road on one of the days when Jesus and the crowd were going by. And he was at the side of the road, and he was crying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him said, shh, be quiet. You're too loud. Don't bother the teacher. You're embarrassing us. But Jesus stopped, and he looked, and he said, come. And blind Bartimaeus got up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him a question because sometimes you and I need to name our need. He said to Bartimaeus, he said, what do you want? And he said, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus healed him. Will you and I, like blind Bartimaeus, cry out to the living God Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see.